Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got a very special guest with us today coming to us all the way from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Can't even say that. Say that three times in a row. Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Dr. George Zagopoulos from the McGill University Health Center and the Rosalind and Morris Goodman Cancer Research Center. I'm going to call him George because that's how we know each other. George, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you, Dino. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to um, to see you, and unfortunately, we're doing this uh, by phone today and not in person. And but I am looking forward to seeing you in person soon again. And uh, it's really uh, a pleasure and an honor to be with you on this podcast today. Well, thanks for taking the time, George. Um, I would call you Doctor Zagopoulos, but I, I think that I would I would start to butcher your name. We we were talking before we hit record about our backgrounds. The Italians and the Greeks were kind of all one and the same. Uh, but you and I have gotten to know each other. Full disclosure for our audience listening at home: you're part of our Precede Consortium. You're one of our partners um, leading the effort up there in Montreal at uh, McGill, and you are a surgeon. By trade, I know you said you, uh, you know, started in the transplant area, um, but you have a lab heavily invested in pancreatic cancer, which we're going to talk about. But before we get there, and what's tradition with all of our guests um, is just this is your opportunity to give our audience listening at home just a little bit about your background. And I always preface this, you know, you can go back to the very beginning of when you started in your career, um, or you can kind of, you know, go from where you are and go back a couple years, but just gives our audience a little bit about, you know, where you've been, what you've done, and then we'll take it from there. Thank you, Dino. I, I think, you know, we won't, we won't go back in history, but uh, just for some folks that may want to relate uh, to a kid that grew up in, um, in a blue-collar family. Uh, my parents are first-generation immigrants from, from Greece uh, to Canada. Uh, I grew up in a blue-collar family, and uh, I was fortunate to, to grow up here in Montreal and, and in Canada, trained both at McGill and, and in Toronto, and had a lot of good mentorship along the way. And, you know, I didn't quite plan to be a surgeon or a transplant surgeon or a hepatobiliary surgeon or, or, in fact, a pancreatic cancer researcher. Uh, the path just led me to it. And, and a lot of it has to do with, with mentorship and, and how fortunate and privileged I was to, uh, to come across uh, such mentorship. So why, why did I, you know, end up... Um, being moved in such a way that that most of my clinical practice and research focus is pancreas cancer and, and related uh, malignancies uh, to pancreas cancer like bile duct cancers and it stems back to when I was a, a medical student I I recall a patient I was a third year medical student and I was in clinic uh, with Professor Greg, who's just recently retired. And he, we saw this patient. Uh, this patient was a Superior Court judge, a Gregorious man, 
that turned yellow one morning as he was going to uh, work. And, you know, met this fellow in clinic and he had his CT scan. And unfortunately, the cancer had, had progressed and was, was beyond where Dr. Gray could offer him surgery. And, you know, the patient went on and had um, his bile duct drained so that the yellow jaundice would, would go away and he could move on to therapy. And at that time, the only therapy that there was for, for chemotherapy was gemcitabine which had some effect and there was data to show that it prolonged life but um, did, and, and helped with symptoms, but uh, did not really impact uh, survival and to a good part, the, the quality of life the patients left when, were left with when they had advanced pancreatic cancer. And Dr. Gregg did something important. He called me back a few months later, even though I was not with them, and asked me to make some time and see this patient in a follow-up visit. That devastation that I saw that day, I would say shaped uh, my career to follow. Hmm. The, the patient had deteriorated significantly for when I saw him. I'm saying three months. It could have been a, a shorter period of time than that. that. That's how I recall it from memory. And what it had done to him physically emotionally and his family and I and and that's I think that that's the one incident that I would say uh, in my training uh, moved me uh, to sort of decide that pancreas cancer would be the focus of uh, of my professional life that's pretty powerful I think George so that's uh, that's that's how I could sum it up for your audience uh, in terms of why, why I'm here today with you. It's powerful to, to hear that. And, you know, this is something that we talk to patients often, you know, is, you know, and I have talked to clinicians about this on our podcast before about that humanity, right? Like they're, they're, you guys have a job to do. And I know sometimes it's hard to, you know, have that uh, emotional connection to patients, but I know clinicians do get connected to their patients and they inspire them, you know, to continue on, you know, whatever capacity they can. And similar to how we get inspired here as we were talking before we hit record about, you know, what's just been happening over the last couple months, right, with this pandemic and with our patient population and you know, the stories of inspiration of patients, you know, continuing to do their treatments and others struggling through that. So it's just really powerful. And thanks for sharing that because I'm always fascinated. You know, I know my reasons why I got involved in this, um, but it's, I, I think it really is a testament to the clinicians in this space, like yourself, that every day go in fighting for those patient families and how that got started is just really special, right? Like you didn't, if you, what ifs, and I don't know if you ever, you know, looked at back at this, but like, if you never had that experience with this patient, would you be where you are today? You know, and, and that's just something really special that you're able to share with our audience. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Dino. I think it's, 
the humanity component of it is is extremely important and what what we do uh, to provide clinical care for patients also what what drives us uh, at the bench in, in the laboratory or in the clinical research uh, setting absolutely absolutely so let's fast forward then to the work that you're doing there at McGill and in Montreal when it comes to pancreatic cancer and early detection. I know from doing some research and, you know, again, full disclosure, you and I have known each other for probably about a year, you know, with Precede as things have heated up uh, with the Precede Consortium and our involvement with all the groups. But I know you've been kind of working at this for a while. So how did you get started kind of in the, you know, looking at the family history of pancreatic cancer? Was there something that kind of just clicked one day or was there a cir- circumstance with a family that you just kind of realized like, hey, maybe there's something here or was it just something like, I know globally this has kind of been an, kind of an initiative over the past year or two, but you've been at this for a little while longer. As, you know, as, as, I, as I decided to follow a, a career path um, and knowing that I would, would focus on pancreas cancer on, on the research end of my, of my career, uh, and try to, you know, focus my clinical practice as well, so that both are closely linked. Uh, my decisions and how to pursue my research training after my PhD during the course of my uh, surgical residency uh, were purposeful. I um, I thought that genetics. And predisposition. Uh, this was in the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, would would impact um, pancreas cancer um, detection and possibly treatment. Hmm. And at the time, you know, th- there was not much known about the molecular aspects of of pancreas cancer tumors. But we knew that pancreas cancer um, aggregated in families and up to 10% of patients that had a diagnosis of pancreas cancer uh, had a family history of pancreas cancer. And it was also becoming evident that there were certain genes, cancer genes, that were inherited, mutations in these cancer genes that were inherited that increased the risk of folks developing pancreas cancer. So I took a purposeful uh, fellowship in the midst of my residency, surgical residency, with uh, Dr. Stephen Gallinger at the at Mount Sinai Hospital and the Toronto General Hospital, um, where his focus was on uh, hereditary cancer genetics and really uh, has, has a passion as well for, for understanding pancreas cancer, um, both at the early detection level as well as the surgical treatment uh, of pancreas cancer and beyond. And so I, I learned about uh, cancer genetics then. Um, I had opportunities to uh, interact with folks across North America that had uh, well-established research labs in uh, pancreas cancer genetics um, that complemented my, my training beyond uh, all of what I received from, from Steve Gallinger's lab in Toronto. Um, by the tail end of my training, as I came on staff in um, Montreal at McGill in 2011, um, it was clear 
that patients that had hereditary mutations in the BRCA1 or and BRCA2 genes um, not only were at risk of developing pancreas cancer, we didn't quite understand and we still don't quite understand what that risk is, but when pancreas cancer is develops because of a muta hereditary mutation in a BRCA2 or BRCA1 gene, it's, it's a different tumor. Um, it's a subtype of pancreas cancer that may respond differently uh, to treatment. More specifically, there would be opportunities, perhaps, for uh, a precision medicine approach where the chemotherapy choices uh, could be directed uh, against the specific molecular defect that this specific subtype of pancreas cancer would have. So that was quite powerful. Not only did we have an opportunity to use cancer genetics to identify individuals at high risk for developing pancreas cancer during the lifetime and, and perhaps uh, be able to intervene earlier through surveillance programs, but also identifying mutations in patients with, uh, with pancreas cancer in, in the BRCA genes uh, may also help their, uh, their treatment through precision medicine. So that's, that was one foundation of why, how I, I, I started my research program at McGill. And the other pillar to it was that I was moving to Quebec. Hmm. And in Quebec, we have this founder uh, effect uh, that stems for, from how the, um, the country uh, started. And the uh, folks that uh, came here from France and a colony started. Uh, unfortunately, with them, uh, mutations or genes came along as well. And as the population grew from, from a handful of folks, uh, those mutations became more prevalent. And that's been well described. This founder effect uh, among French Canadians has been well described. Uh, and it's similar to the founder effect uh, among Ashkenazi Jews. And I knew that there were mutations in the BRCA genes and in another related gene called PALB2 uh, that were more prevalent among French Canadians. So putting all of that together, the research program started um, on pancreas cancer genetics and understanding the risk, identifying individuals um, that were carriers of these mutations um, and using that information not only to treat them perhaps differently and more precisely um, with specific drugs um, in, in terms of their cancer treatment, but also to then offer surveillance, a surveillance strategy for, for their relatives. And that's, that's essentially how the program started. And, and we've taught with time, we've learned and we've seen that cancer genetics uh, in 2020 and providing uh, germline testing for, for patients uh, with a pancreas cancer diagnosis has become the standard of care um, across North America. Not going to put words in your mouth here, George, but the foresight, I mean, you said you started this, like started doing this like in 2011. I mean, I, I remember being at ASCO GI, I think a couple years back 
maybe in 2017 when I, I think it was Steve Leach from MSK uh, put out, and I, full disclosure, my dates might be wrong, but it's around that time. Um, he put out the findings about, you know, the, the BRCA mutations and the treatment protocol that they realized, you know, were having positive effects on genetic mutations, particular genetic mutations in pancreatic cancer. And, and again, I'm probably not doing justice to his presentation, but the recommendation from that point on here in the United States was like, hey, we really need to do, you know, genetic testing on all these pancreatic cancer tumors, you know, when patients present themselves. And then fast forward, you know, to today, where, you know, here in the United States now, anyone who's diagnosed, regardless of where they go, should get genetic testing. So to understand whether or not uh, that tumor contains a BRCA mutation or, you know, one of the other identified mutations. But that's 2020. You're talking about doing this back in 2011. So the, the foresight of that is pretty impressive. Uh, and I know precision medicine didn't really kind of, I think here in the United States, that wasn't until like, what, 2015 maybe? Maybe around 17, 16? I think a lot of it comes from, you know, the teachings, the teachings I've had. Yeah. Uh, you know, once, once I decided to focus in this field and I, I learned very early on, both from, from my teachings and, and my mentors, but also from my own learning, that understanding uh, hereditary cancer will help us understand sporadic cancer. So cancer that doesn't, that w- sporadic is a misnomer. It, it's really cancer that, that, that happens, uh, but is not driven by um, a major uh, hereditary risk factor. Um, the, the advantage of studying hereditary cancer, so cancer that's driven by a hereditary gene mutation, is that we know what the, the onset event was, the, the first genetic change that happened that cancer. And then, and then we, could, we could dissect out the, the mechanisms that led to the development of the cancer. And then by understanding that, perhaps we could apply it uh, to what I just referred to as sporadic cancer. So that... That was probably a um, a basis of, of why I thought it was important to to start in uh, to, to focus on hereditary cancer and and you know it it doesn't and we knew from the breast cancer world uh, that patients that had BRC1 and BRC2 mutations may benefit from biological drugs uh, that target DNA repair pathways like PARP inhibitors. Um, it, there was no evidence at the time that there would be there would be an advantage or a clinical efficacy in pancreas cancer, but there was certainly evidence uh, with um, in breast cancer. Now, you know, I, I must also disclose that I came from a place where innovation uh, was important mm-hmm. at Princess Margaret uh, Hospital in Toronto, and uh, there I, I, I had seen. Um, patients being treated um, purposefully uh, with a pancreas cancer diagnosis and a BRCA2 uh, hereditary or a germline mutation. And 
the purposeful treatment was to, rather than give the patient what, what was the standard of care at the time, gemcitabine, was to add a platinum to that um, treatment. And the reason for adding the platinum was because the platinum would cause a certain type of DNA damage that would overwhelm the cancer cell. And for the first time, I, I saw that purposeful treatment have an effect and the tumor melt away. Hmm. And, um, and that, that showed me that perhaps uh, there, there will be, there'll be a path forward here. Um, I did not know the word precision medicine at the time. I don't think we had invented the word precision <laughs> medicine, but I certainly understood that there was a way of targeting therapy. And I, I think it's, it's bits and pieces. Um, even if we're not smart enough or I'm not smart enough to connect all the dots and, and put it together and, and, and present it elegantly, but there were bits and pieces that suggested that it would be a good idea to focus on this. It came at a price because most grant review applications that came back um, were, well, George, um, this affects 1% to 2% of pancreas cancer patients in total. Um, we probably don't need to invest in this. Um, we pushed on, and others pushed on, and, and I think this is, this is how the field field grew and we, we overcame those barriers. We have other barriers now that hopefully we could talk about later in the podcast, uh, but that, that's essentially how it evolved. You know. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I guess a, a, a joke here, it's, it's a pretty crowded field now where I can imagine back in 2011, you're kind of like the, the sole man on the island, you know, trying to, to, to champion this. And, and now it's a, it's a pretty crowded room where everyone gets it, but there's also probably some I wouldn't say, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I was going to say gratification, George, knowing that, you know, you were on the kind of right path of this. It's just a matter of just time, I guess. And other people realizing, um, you know, as you said, you know, so much you can learn from the hereditary cancers um, that we can relate to sporadic cancers. And I think not to put words in your mouth, but just hearing what you were saying is just really building a roadmap. And I think that's something that I've, I know we've talked about this with other clinicians is that, you know, this cancer and, and people ask all the time, I get this question every week, why is this cancer so bad? And there's so many things that I think we can kind of point to, or we can, we can bring up, but I think the one big thing is there is no roadmap, you know, like other cancers, Breast cancer, for example, my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor. Um, you know, she had a wonderful roadmap the second time around. The first time, not so much back in 2001, but in 2016, she had a wonderful roadmap. And every question that we had was, you know, pretty much answered. You know, we got an answer from her oncologist here in the States, you know, where she was being treated at, uh, at Yale locally. So I think that's the one challenging thing, you know, with this is we don't have a, a roadmap. I think we have bits and pieces of it, I guess I can say from a layman. And, and I'm sure you probably have a better insight into that roadmap, George. But, you know, I think that's uh, it's powerful stuff. Well, I think we're beginning to build a roadmap. Um, I, I'd also like to think that um, we've we're more than just at the initial stage of, of, of you know, deciding to build a roadmap. Uh, what has happened in the last decade is we, we've recognized that um, hereditary pancreas cancer is an important clinical entity. And 
come to accept that uh, it's important to offer um, genetic testing um, to germline genetic testing to all patients that have a diagnosis of pancreas cancer. Uh, that has come with its own challenges and how to deliver that uh, test to the patient is, is, is challenging. Um, we need to provide that test at a reasonable time frame, uh, referring the patient to medical genetics um, to be counseled and to then go on and have a genetic test does not fit with our pancreas cancer patient's um, agenda or timeline. Uh, once their treatment starts, their focus will be on their treatment and all of the life changes that come with it. Um, and it drops in priorities. So that, that, that offer, that test has to, has to happen somehow in an ambulatory or an outpatient uh, oncology or surgical oncology clinic. That, that, that comes with, with its own challenges. The other aspect, uh, whether it be a private a healthcare system or a public healthcare system here in in Canada. Um, you know, how, how do we how do we fund uh, this genetic test? Um, you know, folks were still questioned: does it does it actually impact survival at the end? We could argue that that it probably has an impact uh, because we now have directed therapies uh, for certain um, mutation carriers. Uh, but a lot of that data still needs to to be developed and 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 looked at, uh, so we can have even stronger statements. So on that note, and I think you you mentioned a little bit of this early detection of this disease, and in particular pancreatic cancer. And then I I want to I do have a question here about the the difference between Canada and USA because clearly you're in Canada, we're here in the states, and there's a difference in the way the systems operate. But before we get there, what does early detection look like in particular for pancreatic cancer right now? And, and what are some of the things that we are trying to get to eventually along with Precede? And I know you're in a bunch of other studies. Um, you're involved in, in quite a few studies there in Canada um, You know that are, are similar in scope in terms of um, you know, following uh, patients and, and monitoring and, and surveilling patients that are at high risk. The, the, the first statement I make around this is that surveillance of patients that we consider to be at increased risk for pancreas cancer still remains largely investigational um, in the sense that there are some data to show that it does impact, have clinical impacts that survey this patient, but there's not high level evidence uh, that we're saving lives with surveillance protocols. And this is the reason for the, one of the reasons uh, for putting together a consortium like the Proceed Consortium where, you know, 30 plus centers around the world that have um, expertise in the area come together, share thoughts, share their patient populations that we could learn from it. So I, I, I believe, and, and this is what I, I, I try to put forward, is that uh, a screening for pancreas cancer should be done um, 
in a research setting uh, where the data is collected and can be analyzed and can be shared within the medical and scientific communities so we could we could learn from it. Um, how those protocols should be done, at what age should we start uh, surveilling, at what interval should we start surveilling, and with what modality, what, what imaging modality, because that's really what we mostly rely on right now, um, are still very good research questions. So what does it mean in 2020? Um, I'll share with you what we started doing in 2012, 2013, um, here uh, and the program that I built with some of my partners here is we um, we see patients that we have estimated to have a lifetime risk of at least five percent and and one would say that the the average lifetime risk of pancreas cancer sits somewhere at the one percent mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little higher these days because um, because the incidence of pancreas cancer is increasing. So patients that have at least a 5% life, we estimate based on family history or uh, a, a germline mutation, uh, have a, at least a 5% lifetime risk of pancreas cancer. We follow them uh, on, a, on a protocol and they're enrolled in a research registry so that we could report on the outcomes. Um, they they are seen every six months. Most surveillance programs, patients are are imaged and and followed on a yearly basis. We decided um, to do this uh, at an every at a six month interval, primarily because the one year interval surveillance uh, protocols at the time had largely finally by end and large failed to um, show a, a survival impact uh, hmm. on the patients that they screened. So by that, I mean they, they did catch the pancreas cancers, uh, but they caught them too late uh, to, to be able to cure the patients. So we thought, one, what happens if we follow patients that are highest risk at a six-month interval? And what happens if we alternate the the exams between endoscopic ultrasound and MRI, which are the two modalities that we typically um, use today uh, to to survey or screen patients at increased risk of pancreas cancer? So our protocol is uh, the patients are are seen every six months with either an endoscopic ultrasound. Uh, or an MRI, and uh, they also have uh, routine blood tests and and the tumor marker. More recently, we all, we do pay close attention to their um, glucose or sugar control, uh, and we do look at the in, at um, new onset of diabetes, and that 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 is something that with time is has. Um, become a little more evident to be uh, linked to a uh, pancreas cancer diagnosis. That's where we stand, uh, Dino, at this point here uh, in, in my program. I, I would say that in Canada, uh, because the evidence is not 
there for uh, surveying pancreas can uh, uh, surveying patients that increase risk for pancreas cancer. There are some um, jurisdictional uh, differences um, where some health authorities uh, may not recognize uh, the exams to be covered under uh, the public uh, health uh, care system, simply because the, the level of evidence uh, that's surveying for pancreas cancer uh, has an impact. I've made the argument that there's sufficient evidence that the, it should be offered uh, to patients on the backbone of a research registry uh, so that we could learn from the results and adjust as, as needed uh, when the results become available. And it will be more impactful to do this in a setting of a large consortium where we could pool our data rather than individual sites. So if I read, I that no, it, do, it does. So if I read between the lines, and this is a great segue into Precede, the, a study like the Precede Consortium, where you have you know potentially upwards to five to ten thousand patients in a worldwide registry, that shows the importance of surveilling and screening could lead to uh, public health systems around the world, not just in Canada and private healthcare systems for that matter, because we would have the data to show that by putting these types of families into these registry and putting them into surveillance, that it works. Absolutely. I think we need that level of evidence. And there have been efforts and evidence has been generated. Um, there's sufficient evidence you know, that, that it makes it justifiable for, for myself and other centers to, uh, to offer a surveillance program. And, and what we have seen over the last few years is that most centers that have a pancreas cancer focus uh, will have an associated surveillance program at uh, the center. And these programs, surveillance programs, are by and large done uh, in with some sort of a research protocol attached to them. Awesome. I got two questions left for you here, George, and then uh, we've got one final one, which is uh, probably the most important one. But staying with Precede, in your opinion, you've been doing, you've been involved and invested in genetics with pancreas disease since 2011. Where do you see the strength in Precede in the consortium? in your opinion, and, and there, there's no right or wrong to this. This is somewhat of a loaded question. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but uh, I'd love to hear your feedback and love for you to share that with our audience since you've uh, been invested in this topic for such a long time and I've seen it firsthand and, and would love to hear your thoughts. The, the sum is much more powerful than the individual parts is what I would say. And by that, I mean uh, Proceed will bring together a number of centers, not only within the United States and in Canada, but across the globe uh, with expertise in the area. Um, that is quite powerful. Um, you know, bringing in all of these protocols uh, for surveillance across the globe into one umbrella and, and being able to share the data and analyze it together 
uh, will, will be quite important. At the same time, the expertise as well. And I know, Dino, we have talked about this, but, you know, and I'd like to, to make it a reality, having some sort of a virtual conference uh, where clinicians within the consortium uh, are able to present clinical challenging um, patient uh, cases where they're in a surveillance study and they are unsure whether there's enough of a change in the pancreas to warrant surgery uh, or to share the experiences when the surgeons or the clinical team have intervened and, and provided surgery uh, to a patient in a surveillance study um, based on changes they've seen on endoscopic ultrasound or MRI and, and to share what those results were in real time rather than just, um, you know, when the publication happens, usually several years after uh, the, the uh, intervention, the, the clinical intervention happens. That's, that's, that's what it usually does take. Uh, to to be able to have enough data to to publish, and and sharing those experiences in real time uh, will also inform how we make decisions, clinical decisions for patients in our own individual uh, clinical practice. Yeah, consortium. I think it, you know you brought that up at one of the meetings, and and you know I think sharing is caring is what they say, right? But sharing is so powerful. And I think that, you know, and especially in the pandemic we're in, to be able to share, you know, what's happening and, and what the outcomes are, as you said, in a real time instance versus waiting, you know, years for those, you know, journals or, you know, those publications to come out could could be a, a big difference, um, you know, in, in how we treat patients and how we move the needle and, and also how fast we move this thing, right? Uh, you know, this information superhighway, the, the quicker we can, you know, get these ideas out there, not ideas, but share this data and share this, these cases, these, these, these uh, cases that, you know, warrant being shared amongst this community, the more great things that can happen. Last question for you, George here. And this is back to, you know, we've talked about, you know, early detection, what it looks like, the differences, why pre-seed is so powerful, but we haven't mentioned, and, you know, and, and I'd love to, you know, again, this is for, for what you guys are doing there at McGill and what you've been doing since uh, the start of this is who should be in your study there at McGill or, you know, who is that ideal family, patient, um, I say patient, but you know, when I, I think when people hear patient, they think of someone who's already sick, but these are not sick people in the sense that they have, you know, um, cancer already. Um, they have the potential to developing the cancer possibly at some point, the percentage is higher for them, but who does that look like? Because I'm sure there's people listening to this and going, okay, am I that person? Am I that 5%? that George was talking about that potentially, you know, is at a higher risk versus the general population? So I, I think in terms of, so the first thing I would say is that every patient, hopefully that has a pancreas cancer diagnosis will have access uh, to uh, germline genetic testing. Uh, and I know that I said it's become the standard of care in the sense that it is, 
it, it's a recommendation and in, in centers where pancreas cancer is an academic focus, uh, we, um, we, you know, we offer it. Uh, but the reality is that it is, um, it is not offered wide, widely across healthcare systems because of costs associated with it. Um, but if that test is available to a patient with pancreas cancer, then I would, I would recommend they take advantage of the test. The, and, and, and then, you know, if there is a hereditary risk, there's what's called cascade testing and relatives become, uh, will be offered an opportunity to be tested as the information is disclosed to the patient's relatives. And those patients with a pancreas cancer, you know, relative and uh, carrying a mutation are, are patients that uh, we would consider in, in this proceed program and in our individual uh, uh, studies. The patients at high risk, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, in a podcast, uh, describe what, the, you know, how we look at high, at, at high risk. It, it depends on the number of patients, uh, family members, I should say, affected with pancreas cancer. Uh, it also, um, we also consider whether there's a hereditary mutation known in the family. And I think, you know, if you have any questions, um, we all have uh, pre-screening protocols. So your, your, your doctor could refer us to, uh, could refer you to one of the centers, um, perhaps, uh, you know, to, to, for simplicity to one of the centers uh, affiliated with Proceed. Uh, a lot of this work can be done remotely. and We don't necessarily need to see the patients in clinic for, for the uh, pre-screening to uh, make a decision uh, as to whether the patient should be offered participation in, in a surveillance program. Um, I, I would say that that's Probably how I would I, I would define it at, at this juncture, and and I think you know Dino, we need to develop tools, and and I think there is work in that area. Um, so whether online tools where, where patients could put uh, their their clinical information in and could be given an initial um, uh, assessment. Uh, whether whether they're at increased risk and uh, and sort of direct them that way uh, to their nearest uh, surveillance center, pancreas cancer surveillance center. I think you answered it perfectly. You know, and, and just a, a, a subtle plug here for the precedeconsortium.org, which is the website. We've got links to all of our partners there on the website. So it's a it's a great place to, to find out more in your local area. Um, if you feel that you are uh, at risk uh, and would like to talk to someone, um, you know, within the teams at those individual centers. And on that note, George, uh, last thing here um, is, if someone in Canada, you know, we, as we mentioned before, we, we have listeners, we have uh, participants, we've, we've done events up in Canada with our fitness program. We'd love to learn more about your program, uh, maybe reach out to you or reach out to the team there, learn about, you know, the great things you're doing there at McGill. Where's the best place for people to connect with you? Um, so the best place to connect would be uh, through, you could send us an email, um, that would be the most direct way. 
and um, the email address is actually quite simple. It's cancer.pancreas at mcgill.ca. And I believe we have that queued up on the uh, Precede website as well, uh, which we can go there. I don't think you're on Twitter just yet, George. I don't know if there's been any pressure from uh, your colleagues here in the States to uh, to get you on Twitter. I know that's a place where a lot of uh, clinicians here in this pancreatic cancer space have, uh, have moonlight, I guess, uh, I, I jokingly say moonlight, but I know there's been, you know, in this pandemic, it's been fascinating. I've seen a, a lot oh. of colleagues on Twitter, you know, uh, putting out research, you know, for colleagues and, and a great way to connect. So I, I, um, I will commit to go to, uh, <laughs> Going on Twitter, I, I've uh, it's come time that I give in to that social pressure. I, and you're not the first one that's made that recommendation, and you've done it very politely. And uh, I will take the constructive feedback, and, and we will we will be more active on the Twitter, and we um, and, and we'll participate that way as well. Well, there's no pressure, George, uh, at all. I just was bringing that up because I know some other folks have mentioned, you know, Twitter. I think there's some, there's still a large part of the community that's not there. And I, maybe there's a, there's a lot of peer pressure from the rest to, to get on there, I guess. I don't know. Go figure. Well, George, I want to thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. Uh, first of all, for sharing all the great things you've been doing, uh, you know, in this space, and it's it's truly inspiring to have this conversation and to share with our audience and with the public all the great things you're doing in this space. We need more. George's. So we've got to duplicate you and many of our researchers, all the groups that work in Precede. I feel, you know, we just need to find ways to multiply and just get more people invested and inspired in doing what you guys are all doing because it's all great. We just need to continue to support your efforts to allow you guys to continue to build teams and, and bring in colleagues and, and allow you guys to mentor. So thank you for you know being a guest, but also thank you more importantly for all the great work that you're doing up in Canada. And it's exciting to have you as part of the Precede Consortium. I'm really excited to see where this thing has gone and really looking forward to, you know, the future of really building this out and, you know, having the outcomes that we all hope we will. Thank you, Dino. It was really uh, an honor to be part of your podcast series. And um, I, I think it's also important that we recognize your efforts, uh, Project Purple, um, as a whole, but but also your own individual efforts. Um, I know that it's been a difficult year uh, for you as well, and it's it's quite inspiring to to see you find the energy and creative ways to uh, continue to pursue uh, your, your your mission. Uh, it it really does move us uh, to continue doing the work we do. And uh, I, I also hope that our patients, and when I say our, I mean mine and yours and, and all of us involved in this area, are also inspired uh, by all the work uh, and the effort that Project Purple and yourself put into this on a daily basis. I know it's, it's been a trying year for you, so thank you. Thank you, George, for all the kind words. And uh, there's no I in team, as I like to say. We're going to get through this together, my man. So thank you for being a guest, George. Thank you for all you do. And for those listening at home, thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, 
feel free to share this episode. And until next time, please be safe. And as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. <laughs>